Today's episode of the Book of Basketball 2.0 on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by the ringer.com and the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're still trying to crank out a bunch of content, including this week on the ringer.com, the greatest TV characters of the 21st century. We did a whole bracket. So you can check that out as well as all the pods we're doing. Coming up, the 1997 draft. Joe House and I are going to redraft this. This one has a lot of sentimental reasons to me specifically. Career-wise, Boston fan-wise, you're about to hear all of it. Uh, Rick Patino, you might want to turn this podcast off right now. Here we go. Book of Basketball 2.0. I like Shaq. Kobe's gonna attack. Larry, she's a three. Quads playing that D. LeBron hits him with that steal, and you already feel. Pass it to Luke, yeah. He's gonna juke, yeah, yeah. It's a book of basketball, 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 yeah. All right, we are doing a 1997 NBA redraft. My name is Bill Simmons here with Joe House. We're on the Zoom. We're Zooming it up. We're Zooming. It's good to see you, buddy. We may I, never see each other again. This <laughs> might be our only only relationship by face-to-face. Well, I'm, at least uh, I'm willing to look at you only on the internet um, as long as it means that neither one of us got the Rona. Yeah. Well, I think this hopefully will lead to a lot of things like this, including... I kind of feel like we have to do a rewatchables of the 86 masters. Oh my God. In the place of masters weekend, which I I'm upset about so many things. I really miss basketball. I, I fear for the future. I fear for my family and my kids not having the masters is just going to be, I, I, I can't even deal with it mentally. It's just, well, let me, it was always the sign that spring was here. For me, it I wasn't know. even opening day. It was the Masters. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. And we are going to lose that. But I still have hope. I'm keeping hope alive, BS. We could have an incredible, un, unprecedented, once-in-a-lifetime fall sports schedule that includes all four majors running from, like, the end of July through December. Which, yeah, let's you know, along with everything else, would be pretty titsy, if I may say so. So we're doing, uh, I did the 96 draft with Brasillo. Now we're doing the 97 draft. Um, Just to reiterate some of this stuff here. I created a scrap rating. Oh. It's called, it's the acronym for Simmons Crapshoot Rating um, (laughs) to try to figure out exactly how much of a crapshoot each draft was compared to how we felt at the time. So for this one, as we, as we head into 97, which was the Duncan lottery, um, we'll have to talk about how erratic it was compared to how we were feeling at the time. The other thing is it's pretty easy to rank all these guys in different categories, right? To, to try to figure out what level of a draft we had. So for me, I'm using the five star system. Okay. Super duper stars, five stars. That's Timmy Duncan, who's going to be coming up multiple times in this pod. All-timer is a four-star. Franchise guy is a three-star. Legit all-star is a two-star. Quality starter is a one-star. So for anybody in a draft to even get to quality starter usually means that you did pretty well in the draft. And then after that, the categories would be starter, Lottery rotation guy, so a rotation guy that came from the lottery, 
rotation guy. Lottery whiff, not good enough to be mentioned at all. And Hashim Thabit. That's the last category. <laughs> he only comes up in the 2009 draft. So the 97 draft lottery, looking back, it became the Duncan lottery. And it was hitting at a point which is near and dear to our heart when teams really started tanking. This started when we were kids. It started really with the 83-84 season and the Hakeem Olajuwon draft. Ralph Sampson was already on the Rockets. The Rockets full-fledged tanked down the stretch. They were playing your boy, Elvin Hayes, who was our age that season. They were playing him like 49 minutes and overtime games and stuff like that, doing everything they could to get into that number one spot, which they did. And the year after they end up having a lottery. Um, what do you remember? When do you remember being aware of tanking? Because the eight, the 96, 97 Celtics unabashedly tried to tank for Duncan here. When do you first remember tanking? Yeah, I think that's about the, the time frame. It was uh, mid nineties. I don't recall teams deliberately overtly. And, you know, part of the thing in terms of thinking back to that era the information was 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 um, not as readily available. You couldn't get an early read on what a team was going to try and do. And teams were were dumber back then. Teams did oh, try yeah. and compete. Teams tried to make the playoffs, even though they might, uh, you know, have only 36, 37 um, wins as their highest potential win total out there. So teams, I you know, tried to get to the playoffs as opposed to going in, in that other direction, which is kind of weird because back then the odds were so much better. You really were rewarded for tanking back in in that era. Um, I just don't remember teams going super out of their way um, to to you know take things all the way down the way that the the in the modern era it really got accelerated. Or if they were doing it, we just didn't have the information network in place to understand that they were doing that. So this draft happens June nineteen ninety seven. A a month earlier, I started my old website, the Boston Sports Guy. Wow. Which I think I started uh, May 20th around there. And I started writing columns for Digital City Boston. The draft diary for this year was like the fifth draft diary I ever did. And I was just taking notes on a notepad. Then I went to a computer and typed everything. We really didn't have that much draft information. I don't even really remember how we read about the draft back then. I remember Sporting News was online at that point. Um, Other than that, like there was no Chad Ford yet. ESPN.com was not what it was. We really only knew these guys from watching them in college. It was the old school experience of, I had opinions on Keith Van Horn and, and Tim Duncan. And I had no opinion on Tracy McGrady. How the fuck would I know if Tracy McGrady was any good, right? Yeah, and that was, you know, what we had was SportsCenter. It was like whatever extended NBA coverage we got out of SportsCenter um, in that time. I don't remember having any other outlet. There was no NBA TV. You couldn't right. go learn about anything from that. So even if a team made a massive, horrible, terrible mistake, half half the time, two-thirds of the time, we didn't even know. You know, you look at this draft and the way it actually worked out, where you look at it now and you go, wow, T-Mac went ninth? At the time, that seemed reasonable. He was this high schooler from South Carolina. We, we didn't know where he was going to go, but you know the Celtics had the third and sixth picks in this draft. If they had taken T-Mac sixth over Ron Mercer, 
who I knew, who I had watched in Kentucky and appreciated, right. I think I would have been bummed out. Well, and Mercer played for Patino. It was yep. Patino's first year. So you, had, as a Boston fan, after you had to get over the anguish of losing out on Duncan in in, in the lottery, um, you know, getting the getting a, a, a Kentucky guy to go with Patino and and fit in with a Patino thesis, uh, right. which was the full court press, the defense, all that crazy stuff that he showed up with. Um, Mercer wasn't the worst pick. No, and we'll, we're going to get to him because he's going to come up later when we do the redraft. So this was the Duncan lottery. There was a weird moment somewhere between when the college season ended and the draft when Van Horn versus Duncan became kind of a thing. And I don't know whether people were just bored. We didn't know how to really write and talk about the draft back then. But in Boston, before the lottery shook out, and the Celtics had like, I think a 50% chance to get the number one pick that year and somehow didn't get it. It was, I'll tell you, it was a 36% chance that you probably single-handedly sabotaged because you went to Cape Cod with the lunatic rather than staying at home <laughs> with, with, your, with your dad. And you know, I know all of this because I have the book of basketball. I did. I was dating. I was dating somebody who's a very nice person. Um, a lovely person. It was a volatile relationship. But um, <laughs> we uh, we had the lottery that day. And, you know, obviously my family had season tickets since the mid-70s. And my dad and I were going to watch it. And my lady at the time decided she really wanted to go to the Cape where, the, where they had a house. And I ended up, it'll be fine. I'll watch it from there. I'll just call my dad. And the Celtics ended up getting... Uh, the third pick. And I, I I don't know if that was the number one reason we broke up a couple of weeks later or a couple of months later, but it was definitely the top three. I have a lot of regrets. I mean, has I really your dad do. forgiven you? Well, so I go back in 2007 to watch the Durant Odin lottery with him in the room. And we got screwed on that one too. We did even worse. So as it <laughs> turns out, my location had no, uh, had no bearing on this, but I do remember there was a Duncan Van Horn thing heading into that. And with Van Horn, you know, who I think is now kind of underrated because he did get hurt. Um, his first couple of years of his career were really good. And, uh, you know, he's a 20 point guy. He was on good teams and he just couldn't stay healthy. But Tim Duncan is the seventh best player of all time. Right. So it's nuts that we even had one conversation about who to take. I agree. The other, uh, we didn't really have a conversation though. It was no, like, well, people were, people were having conversations. It, we weren't, this, we watched in, college basketball back then. In the same way that, that folks, um, you know, might have, there was some crazy talk about like John Morant going number one, right? Just right. Just, Cause so people get bored talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So, the Celtics, they have ML Carr that year as the coach. I'm going to all those games. My dad doesn't want any part of it. And now ML says after the fact that they were tanking, they ah. were not tanking until the last 20 games. Last yeah. 20 games, they started, that's when the lineups got funky. They started playing Antoine Walker at center. He was a rookie. Do it, just telling Antoine to jack it up. And But the first 60 games, there was no tanking. And they did, their roster wasn't built to tank. They had guys like Dana Barros and Todd Day. Like they were trying to win. They were just terrible, and he was a terrible coach. So coming off Len Bias dying in 1986, Reggie Lewis dies in 1993. Um, 
Mikhail and Parrish and Bird, they're all gone. The Boston Garden gets knocked down. This is dark times for the Celtics and Boston sports in general, and Duncan's going to save all of us. We hire Rick Pitino as coach GM president, whatever he was, who is such a dumbass. He doesn't wait until after the lottery before he decides whether he's going to get the Celtics job. Takes the job. We get the third pick. And then years later, he's complaining like, man, if if we'd only gotten Duncan, I think my whole time, it's like, well, you could have just not come. How about that (laughs) idea? You could have just... Not come yeah, to Boston. He was desperate to get back in the in the league. Oh yeah, he, and they he, offered he, him a lot of money, fifty yeah. million bucks. Yeah. Um. What? A couple other weird things about this lottery. You're you're Washington then bullets, <laughs> not in the lottery. You the actually last... had like a decent season. Congratulations. Well, you know the, the the we were not in the lottery. We also didn't have a draft pick. This 1997 draft came on the heels of the Juwan Howard re-signing debacle where the Bullets uh, violated the, the, the collective bargaining agreement by attempting to resign him to a salary that was not acceptable. Oh. The, 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 the commissioner voided that resigning um, and then let them compete and then basically engineered it so that Juwan stayed in Washington, D.C. He, 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 he rooked the heat. But the impact, the penalty for the Bullets was loss of their 1997 first-round selection. And that was still picking, <laughs> picking nobody was still better than five Ernie Grunfeld picks. I mean, well, it wasn't Ernie Grunfeld back then. I think. No, I know. Was- I'm just saying like the way it worked out <laughs> is that still would have been like the fifth best Ernie Grunfeld pick. Uh, well, uh, it, it was West Unseld. So, I mean, you know. Oh, God. Yeah. So a couple other things. Vancouver is in the top five before they moved to Memphis. That was exciting. The Celtics had the third and six picks. Um, Toronto. So I'll, I'll do the top 10. San, San Antonio, who you want to tell the quick story of how San Antonio even ended up winning the lottery? What happened? Do you remember? I don't remember it. I, I, I've i looked at it, but you, you you go through it. I mean, I know David, Duncan got hurt. The upsh- I mean, uh, no, Robinson David Robinson. Robinson, Robinson hurt. gets hurt. It's a fantasy assassination. Robinson at that point is a top three fantasy basketball pick back when fantasy basketball was still great. I really enjoyed it back then. I think I had David Robinson on my team and he was just gone. It's like, he'll be back in two months. And then it was like, ah, now we're looking at March. And then they just put him on ice. (laughs) Yeah. And they ended up, I think getting the sixth spot, but then hit the lottery with the lottery. So they get it. So it's San Antonio, then Philly, who's a year after taking Allen Iverson. Celtics are three. Vancouver's four. Denver is five. A perennial lottery appearance for them. Uh, Celtics, six. The Nets, number seven. A year after uh, not taking Kobe Bryant, the decision that would continue to haunt them over the next two decades. Golden State, eight. Toronto, nine. Milwaukee, 10. Sacramento, 11. Indiana, 12. Cleveland, 13. And amazingly, the Clippers at 14. Maybe maybe their latest lottery appearance. I, I don't know what was going on with them this year. So here's how the draft actually went, and then we're going to redraft it. Just we'll do the top 15 here. Duncan to the Spurs. Van Horn goes to Philly. Celtics jump on Billups. Antonio Daniels to Vancouver. Batista to the Denver at five. 
At this point, when we're watching this live, no surprises, no crazy things yet. Ron Mercer, six to Boston. Tim Thomas, seven to the Nets. And then Golden State gets a little funky at eight. They take a Donald Foyle. We don't have a lot of opinions on guys we hadn't seen and draft until all that stuff. But he fucking went to Colgate. We went to Holy Cross. We were very familiar with the Patriot League at this point. And I remember being on the phone with you talking about this at some point that year, just being like, there's a Colgate guy who's allegedly going in the top 10. That sounds ridiculous. How is he not destroying the Patriot League? It was we, it was just a story, right? Like Golden State drafted for the narrative. They didn't draft for the talent. They 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 wanted this guy and his story for 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 whatever reason. And they make, it was and how smart he was. That was the thing. He's so smart. It's the smartest player we've ever done a pre-draft interview with and stuff like that. It's like, well, that's great, but if he was the Bill Russell of the Patriot League, guess what that means? He was the Bill Russell of the Patriot League. I think the math for them was like Danny Fortson or a Donald Foyle kind of like in that spot for what they needed. And they were like, no Fortson, no no Fortson. Well, Fortson, so he was, he went to Cincinnati. He, McGrady goes nine to Toronto, which was right around when people thought he was going to go. And at that point, he was just like the amazing high school player who's related to Vince Carter, but we didn't even know who Vince Carter was yet. Uh, Or did we? No, we. I guess Vince was. He was at North Carolina at that point, so we knew we the cousins thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fortson goes ten. He's at Cincinnati. The Cincinnati guys at that point were always a a, a roll of the dice, little wild card. Yeah, a little wild card. Just never knew it. Those Sacramento takes Tariq Abdul Wahad at number eleven. Do you remember what his what his uh, original name was for this draft? I, I do not. Olivier Saint Jean. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And then he became Tariq Abdul-Wahad. Uh, right. Austin, Austin Crozier goes 12 to Indiana. At that point, just a classic Indiana pick. It's like, who's the best white guy? Let's grab him. <laughs> Derek Anderson to the Cavs at 13. Maurice Taylor to the Clippers at 14. And then Kelvin Cato went to Dallas at 15. I have a vague memory of us making jokes about his Burmese snake. The snake, of course. Do you remember this? What, yeah. what did he, his snake attack somebody? What happened with him? I don't remember. It's just the snake. I just remember Kelvin Cato and the giant snake. I'm going to Google. Looking it up? All right, yeah, while I'm you're looking Google. it up, I have to get, I have a cheat sheet I need to get. I'm taking off my headphones for one second. Um, oh, okay. This is what I wrote when I did my top 50 moments of the 1997 draft piece for page two, which borrowed from the different draft diaries I did. 97, the Mavs take Kelvin Cato, a former dishwasher who ended up at Iowa State after a growth spurt. TNT's two draft facts about him are, quote, never played high school basketball and, quote, owns a nine-foot Burmese python snake. Apparently rattled by these facts, Dallas immediately trades Cato to Portland for the number 18 pick, which turned out to be Chris Ancy. Well, that can't be true. Monetary considerations. That, 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 there's no way that, that, that they're like, oh, we didn't know about that. We didn't know that he had the giant snake. Other 1997 draft highlights, just so you have them. This is what I wrote down. I, I honestly don't even remember any of this. Um, near the end of the first round, Peter Vesey told us the Timberwolves and Clippers made a trade. 
seems super exciting. And then the trade was Stoiko Vrankovic straight up for Stanley Roberts. <laughs> so, uh. so that one happened. Um, oh, another great thing that happened in this draft. So Houston took Roderick Rhodes. Hubie described him as having incredible upside. <laughs> that wasn't the first incredible upside. That was the first incredible upside no. from Hubie. Well, apparently, according to my research. Wow. Um, and then six years later, in 2003, to up the stakes, he talked about the European influx. And he created the word tremendous upside potential. Which Hubie. became a running joke for us forever. Like, how do you even really have tremendous upside potential. Nobody knows. Um, then another thing that happened here was the Sixers, they took Keith Van Horn second, but then they traded him to New Jersey in the draft, in the, you know, the draft day deal. And then Van Horn had to wear the Philly hat, even though he was headed to New Jersey. So that, that was like that weird era in the nineties when, they couldn't even report the trade till the end of the first round. Oh, yeah. So there was like two, three hours of just people being super awkward about a it. funky hat. Yeah, so that happened. Um, another thing that happened in this 97 draft was after Patino, he takes Chauncey Billups third, he takes Ron Mercer sixth. There's a huge party at the Fleet Center for all the Celtics fans, and Patino is there. And Patino called his new rookie tandem, quote, my dream backcourt for the next 10 years. <laughs> he, uh. traded, he traded Billups after 51 games. Rick Pitino, liar! I wondered if... All if, you do is lie, Rick Pitino! I have to, to, to tell you, I wondered if the reason... Because this, this draft sucked, you know? Um, yeah. Like top to bottom, it's a crappy draft. And I understand, you know, the, the point of doing it. But I really wondered if the reason that you insisted that we include this draft in the, in the, in the zoom and the podcast is just so we could talk shit about Patino for 45 minutes. So I had three reasons. That was obviously the number one reason. <laughs> the number two reason is we're all in a giant self quarantine right now. There's not going to be sports for three months. So what no. the fuck else are we going to talk about? We're, and then I don't remember the third, Oh, the third reason. Oh, is drunk house here? No, no, no. I'm just showing. I'm just saying. Oh. And the third yeah. reason was Calvin Cato's, uh, his, Giant uh, snake. His Burmese snake. Here's the irony of what happened with the Celtics. So they end up with Billups. They they really could have taken Tracy McGrady instead of Ron Mercer at six. Um, and then a year later, they fall into Pierce at 10, which would have happened anyway, because McGrady wasn't going to help them in year one anyway. There's like a really conceivable world. It's not unrealistic. Where they take Billups, they take McGrady, they get Pierce at 10 the following year. They already have Antoine Walker. It's not even like, oh man, best case scenario. Like Billups, McGrady, Pierce, Walker really could have happened coming out in 1998. It really does properly reflect the bias at that time towards established college players. Like we'd seen Mercer. Mercer had done things for Kentucky in pressure moments, and it really was a bias that we carried. Um, you know, all, all as your uh, draft franchise grew, we got together a handful of times. I mean, we both made fun 
of um, Orlando for taking Dwight Howard over Emeka Okafor. It was yep. that bias because we'd seen we we had this idea that seeing guys in pressure situations um, in the in the in the March Madness tournament, in the Final Four, guys that played in the championship game, that was meaningful. That was useful. Like you could nobody has to ask what's the most meaningful game that Ron Mercer's ever played in, and how did he stand up to that pressure? Because we had the evidence of it. And he had he played two years at Kentucky. His second year, he was 18 points a game, five rebounds, two assists, uh, 49% shooting. They didn't shoot a lot of threes back then, but he made 49. And Kentucky, they uh, weren't they in the finals that year? Yeah, they were in the final this year. I think they won. So, you know, one of the reasons we felt that way, and this is going way back to our relationship, which was largely built on basketball and eating and, um, and making bad decisions with the women in our lives at the point. But we really valued how people showed up in March Madness and did that stuff. And like a really good example is you and I always loved my soon-to-be friend, Jalen Rose. Yeah. Because we love those Michigan teams. He came up big over and over again for those Michigan teams, played in huge stages, and then went to the NBA and just got buried for four years. And we were like, this is ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, he's 98 playoffs the 2000 finals in Indiana and he blossoms into Jalen Rose. But we really did value that even with guys like Eric Montrose. Right. Um, and <laughs> just people that had, but I, I think what happened in the mid nineties is once the talent in college started fading because these guys were going right into the draft or one year and then going right in the draft. I think in general, the college talent started to deteriorate and we didn't realize it for a couple of years. Man, so the man. Ron Mercer 18, a game, wasn't as impressive as it would have been maybe six years earlier. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And, you know, there was absolutely no way um, in that time to to evaluate uh, properly high school guys. Just no no way whatsoever. That's It was just a guess. Right. And by the way, still the case. I mean, I, we, going all the way through, we eventually relived it with some of the foreign guys. I did the draft when Giannis fell to, I think, 15. I remember saying during the draft, I thought they it was a good pick at the spot, really good value. All of us were like, we have no idea if this guy's going to be good. He was 6'9". He was playing on these, you know, uh, you could see in, these videos. It looked like he was at a YMCA. Yeah. So a uh, couple other things from this draft. Only three future All-Stars. Tim Duncan, Tracy McGrady, Chauncey Billups. Um. You could make a case that those three guys, if you're just rating them by combined rings, all-star appearances, all-NBA, win shares, salaries earned, whatever you want to use, those three guys are as good as any three guys we've had in the last 25 years from a draft. Oh, wow. You could say LeBron Wade Carmelo or LeBron Wade Bosch were better. I think I would. I think they have a right... I think they have a case for the second spot. Because you could talk Chauncey about the Kobe draft. Time. It did, but I mean, he, you know, he won a ring. He was he was awesome in the 2004 finals. He almost got to the finals again in 09. Yeah. He had a really good career and, and a lot of respect. He was a borderline pyramid guy for me. I don't think he made it. T-Mac was definitely a pyramid guy and T-Mac had incredibly bad luck, but Duncan became uh you know a top seven guy. So if you're just talking 
drafts since 94. That threesome is pretty good. Duncan was 10 first, team all NBAs, three seconds, two thirds. Billups was two seconds and one third. McGrady, the most underrated guy of the last 20 years, probably, if you're just talking resume, two first team all NBAs, three seconds, two thirds. The problem is now there's no way to sell um, the current generation on how effing good Tracy McGrady was. Like the, 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 um, whatever that, that YouTube is of, um, what did he score? 13 points in seven seconds or whatever it is. Yeah. That's something like, like that. That's like the best you can do to help folks get a feel for, for it. But he was so ahead of his time in terms of the inside outside game, the range that he had, how good he would be in this current NBA is off the charts. Well, the other thing with him, terrible luck with teammates. And then he leaves Toronto, which he probably shouldn't have, but you know, wanted a wanted his own franchise. Toronto was always going to be Vince's franchise when he left. Goes to Orlando. He thinks he's going to play with Grand Hill. Grand Hill gets hurt. He's just never Grand Hill. Goes to Houston. He's with Yao, who in retrospect, bad fit for T Mac, even though they had some success. But, you know, there's seven foot six Yao clogging the lane. And, you know, I People I've talked to, you know, the Steve Kerr, Daryl Morey, all the, all those people who are in the league now, they always say T-Mac out of anyone from the, from the 2000s would have benefited the most from how basketball is played now. He could already shoot threes. You could run an entire offense through him. You would really would have wanted to space the floor for him, which nobody was doing back then. And he just would have dominated. He was scoring 30 a game anyway. The funny thing is he is like uh, James Harden 1.0. And if he was playing now, he would be James Harden 3.0 because he's he's better. I mean, right. all, all due respect to James Harden, the incredible talent that he is. But T-Mac physically, what he he was capable of, and he, he definitely has Harden range playing in this era. I would stack up Harden and T-Mac and let let's 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 do a tale of the tape. Let's see which I one think- you prefer. He's definitely a much better defender. And there was a moment when he was on Toronto those first three years when uh, when it looked like he was going to be the Pippin to to Vince's MJ when Vince came in in the from the 99 draft and looked so great as a rookie. And it was like, wow, these two together. And we never really saw the, the T-Mac being the 30-point-a-game scorer guy. But, you know, his... His 2000s are pretty unassailable. And they even the 22-game winning streak where the second-best guy in the team is Ray for Alston. Right. You know, stuff like that. He never had his moment in the playoffs, but I don't blame him for that. And, you know, it's funny. I People just, especially the younger, under-25 people who weren't there for when these guys were actually at their peak, I think people probably think Vince Carter was better than T-Mac, right? Um. I think that I think if you didn't Probably. know any better, you would say, "Oh, wasn't Vince better?" And it's like, it's not close. Actually, T Mac was much better than Vince. Yeah, uh, he was a super duper star who just kind of never found the right situation. But I remember going to a game, and I think I wrote about this when I wrote about T Mac because I really thought he was so underappreciated when he retired. And I went to a lot of Celts games in the nineties. Um, I was a 10 minute walk from the garden, the whole thing. And I think as a rookie, they played there and he did, he wasn't playing. He was, he was, 
you know, just wearing uh, street clothes, like a suit at that point. And he was wearing this big suit that just seemed too big for him. It it just, it, you could just tell he was like a fish out of water. Like you could tell he was in South Carolina nine, 10 months before this game. And I remember feeling bad for him. I remember yeah. thinking like, man, I feel bad for this kid. He's 19. It looks like he, like I wish he had gone to college. Like a real kid. He's a kid. Yeah. And the, at the, that point in time, the league was not smart enough. They, there was no infrastructure for development and for recognition. It was just pure dumb luck of the draw, whether he found somebody in the organization that could, you know, be a mentor to him, teach him how to be an adult. Like, how would he, a kid from South Carolina, know how to go live in, in Toronto with his background and his circumstances? How, how like, what ch- are the chances of success for 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 him? Without, you know, a whole like a, a dedicated team of people to make it a welcome arrival and then build on 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 his development. I saw it happen here in Washington with Kwame Brown. A yeah. very similar kind of circumstance. MJ took him one overall. He's just a kid. He didn't even know how to do his laundry. I think that repeating kind of phenomena, because the league wasn't really accustomed to taking kids out of high school and didn't really have any mechanism in place to properly develop those guys. It was just like dumb luck, whether or not there was somebody in the franchise that could be like a parent to these kids. I think they eventually figured it out, but it wasn't until I'm going to say the LeBron, the LeBron uh, Howard era where they started to put real thought into, wait a second, we're actually hurting our league and we're hurting our product and the competitiveness of the league by not protecting these young assets. These guys right. are coming in and they're just not prepared to be professional and to understand anything. Yeah. Like like a tipping point to me was like Jermaine O'Neal. Well, that what well, you mentioned the Kwame thing is I, I Eddie Curry was another one to me where that those two guys get thrown together. Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler get drafted as two high scores. It's a terrible idea. You know, they I, go to Chicago, they have no infrastructure in place for those guys. And we, you know, and Tyson Chandler for years, you know, it, he bounced around, finally landed in New Orleans in like 2008, I'm going to say. Um, but the career that he had compared to, I think if he had come a decade later, I think he would have been, I don't know. Cause he, you know, he seems like a really smart guy. Like he's a great teammate, all that stuff, but he got thrown into the league. Like like on a frying pan, basically. Well, an incredible athleticism. Like if you had all the first 10 years of his athleticism and his defensive instincts, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, impressive potential. So one of the reasons that this draft wasn't great was because we, 95 and 96 was the first time we had some atrophy with the draft because high schoolers going right in and one and done guys. One and done guys was a huge thing. So we had... KG goes into the 95 draft right out of high school. Kobe goes into the 96 draft right out of high school. Marbury's in the 96 draft. He's only at Georgia Tech one year. Sharif Abdurrahim, who got hurt, but if you go back at the time in the mid-90s, was considered a prize. Yeah. And was one of the highest rated high school recruits, the whole thing. He was good, by the way. He was good. He got hurt. Um, I did create the Sharif Abdurrahim All-Stars for him for... The most meaningless 20 points a game anybody could have. He had no, he seemed to have no real effect on his team winning or losing, but he would get his points. And then Jermaine O'Neal was the other one. 
and you think about it with this 97 draft, one of the reasons it seems a little lean is in the old days, Marbury would have stayed two years. KG is at college for maybe two years. Maybe Kobe is one and done or something like that, but you lose those five guys. And this is when the league's kind of readdressing. McGrady replaces one of those spots. But for the most part, uh, 95 and 96 were pretty loaded. And uh, and that didn't come around. Then the other thing, want to talk about the Duncan lottery because um, that's what this is called now. These are the biggest draft prizes in NBA draft history. It starts with Kareem when he was Lou Alcindor okay. and the coin flip between him and Neil Walk. That was the first time everybody really understood the stakes of the draft. There are enough fans. Bill Walton, 1974. Magic Johnson, 1980. Ralph Sampson and Hakeem back-to-back, 80, 83 and 84. Ewing in 85. Robinson, I think, 87. Shaq, Weber, Duncan. And then after Duncan, it's interesting. I think you would only say LeBron, Odin, Durant, and then Zion. So if you're just talking the last 20-plus years, there's really only been other three lotteries where you're like, oh my God, they got to get this guy. I don't really feel like anybody else qualifies, right? Yeah, no, there's, I don't, I was uh, doing the the mental calculus here. Um, no, that's it. That's the list. Where it's like, this guy could change our franchise. Yeah. The, the um, well, I don't want to waste any time on it. I just used the Odin Durant. It still hits me. It still hurts me. I Odin just, was Odin was really good in college, you know, and and oh, whether he should have gone first or second, like I, it wasn't crazy that he went first. No, no, I agree. It was one A, one B, and yeah. we had we had a slight preference for Durant because of what a preternatural scorer he was and how much we enjoyed watching it. But making him one A and getting uh oh, you have the coronavirus? Not yet. It's just allergies. Happened. This is the oh. thing. Every morning I wake up. And I'm I'm dealing with the allergies. The pollen is in full force here in Washington D.C. And I just I take my temperature, and I and I try and hold my breath for thirty seconds to make up, make sure I didn't wake up with the Rona. But you take oral temperature, or anal. <laughs> you know how I like it. There's only one way, and it's big. It's not a small thermometer. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> I lost my point. What were we talking yeah. about? I don't know. Let's let's go to the draft. I have I gave this a scrap rating, Simmons crap shoot rating of 3.5 out of 10. I actually think it's a pretty normal draft. If you redo it, there's only six guys that I think could qualify as a starter or better. And then after that, you go into lottery whiffs and lottery rotation guys, stuff like that. Um, let's do a couple of Zachs before we do the the redraft. The ringer Zach Cram who is uh, one of the most advanced metrics these guys, we, not only at the ringer, but I think anywhere, and is really good at digging up stuff. We, we call them Zacks. Zach Zach Facts. Zacks. Zacks. Zach says only three all-stars came out of this draft, which tied with 2000 and 2013 for the fewest in error of all these redrafts we're going to do here from 96 on. So not, not a fertile draft for all-stars. He said Duncan alone made more than half the all-star appearances of the entire class. 
He also says the draft's non-lottery players are collectively the second worst on record ahead of only 1991. And then the top undrafted players in this draft were Damon Jones, Mikey Moore, and Troy Hudson. I always like Mikey Moore. Me too. I love his hair. So we're near the redraft. I thought, I thought we'd alternate picks. Okay. So I'll give you the first pick because it's an easy one. San Antonio is on the clock with everybody in this draft. Who do you have? Tim A. Duncan. Do you think he leaves the Celtics? Because I feel like he would have. What do you mean leaves Af- after? So you could have back then. Remember contract? they? Yeah, they changed the CBA and it was three and out. Yeah, so three. The, the, the 95, 96, 97 guys, you're there for three years. You could potentially either get out or you're you're available for an extension. If they don't give you an extension, you have a roadmap to get the hell out of there. That's how when uh, the 99 lockout ends, remember all these crazy extensions are given out. Like uh, Antoine Walker gets six years, 71 million. Bryant Reeves, all those guys. Um, I think if Patino and Duncan as a combo and the Celtics are doing like these pressing and Patino is just, the NBA players just hated him. He made more money than all of them. He yelled at them. He treated them like they were college players. And everybody was out on him within a year and a half. So I wonder, like, at some point, does Duncan stay? Or is he like, it's either me or him? Does he run for the hills? What does he do? I don't know. I think um, just based, we have the benefit of of all of this, you know, 20-some years of, of Tim Duncan in our lives. And... Even at the moment, he stayed at Wake Forest for four years. I think he would have stayed. Like it was his kind of stoic, make it work kind of personality. It seems like it's impossible to say, you know, because he arrived in absolutely the very best po- uh, position possible, and it it was a perfect fit for his personality, his demeanor, his temperament. Um, and who knows whether the fiery Patino? You you imagine Patino would have had the good sense to be deferential. To Duncan, and he, yeah. he he definitely understood Duncan's talent. So I think Patino, the insane version of Patino that we saw with the Celtics, it would have been a different Patino, I think. So Duncan almost left San Antonio to go play with uh, Grant Hill and potentially T Mac that year when they were all free agents. And if you go back and read some of the stuff, it's pretty interesting. He was pretty close to leaving. And okay. then I think the Popovich Robinson thing. Now, how close was he? I don't know. But the fact that he was even thinking of leaving that situation makes me think he would have led uh left treadmarks getting away from Rick Patino. Okay. Hey, I want to I want to mention something I mentioned earlier. The Celtics could have had Billups, T Mac, and Pierce. And you know who fucked it up? Rick Patino. <laughs> Fuck you, Patino! <laughs> Burn in hell! <laughs> you dick! The 1997 draft. Fuck you, Rick Pitino. Okay, so Philly is on the clock here for our redraft. In 97, they took Keith Van Horn, realized maybe this isn't somebody who should be the second banana for Allen Iverson. Let's, let's try to trade him for a bunch of pieces. They trade him to the Nets for the seventh pick, which ends up being Tim Thomas. Here's what that trade was. Number two pick, Michael Cage, Lucius Harris, and Don McLean to the Nets 
for Jimmy Jackson, Eric Montrass, Anthony Parker, and the seventh pick, Tim Thomas. At the time, it was like, wow, they got Jimmy Jackson and Montrass? Right. Like, that yeah. nice trade. Good, good job. None of that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> for either team. The lesson is always, don't trade down in the NBA draft. It's yeah. it, If you have a blue chip pick, maybe don't do it. Van Horns ends up, he goes to the Nets and has a nice little run here where I remember as a rookie, I remember really enjoying them. He averages 20 a game his first year. Then in the lockout season, 22 a game, eight and a half rebounds house. Yeah. I mean, he was a very credible pro. 19 points a game in 2000, 17 a game in 2001. And then in 2002, Jason Kidd is there. He's 15 a game, seven and a half rebounds. And they go to the finals. And in the playoffs, he plays 20 games in the playoffs for them. 13.3 points, 6.7 rebounds, 44% three-point shooting. I know. And I think what we would have seen with him as the league evolved, he, he might have been a ahead of his time guy. His three-point shooting got better as it went along. And Dallas was the team that eventually kind of unlocked that. He ends up, he's on the Nets. He gets traded back to Philly in the uh, Matumbo trade, I think. Um, he ends up on the Knicks, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, then plays Dallas for the last two years. But for the last, man, the last, uh, from 2003 to 2006, 38% shooter from three. And I think that's what he would have became. You just would have put him in the corner. Yeah, he 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 would have killed it in the in the current NBA. So, um, Philly normally I would say that maybe just keep Keith Van Horn, but no, because obviously they should have taken Tracy McGrady. Yes, and there's a world where they have Allen Iverson and Tracy McGrady in the same team. And guess what? That world is realistic because they had the <laughs> second pick. Um. It would have been considered complete lunacy if they did that, though. Yes, yes, no, and and we everybody would have merciless, mercilessly mocked them, and and you know, we saw Keith Van Horn in the in in the NCAA's perform very well and lead that Utah team, you know, to 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 great acclaim. So, it did makes they, sense. Did they win the title? I can't remember. No, no, because then the next year. Utah makes it back without Van Horn. Remember that with the yes. Andre Miller team, and I think that was that was an early Ewing theory candidate because everyone oh. wrote off that team with with oh they don't have Keith Van Horn they're not going to be good and then somehow they were better. All right, you're on the clock with the third pick, the Boston Celtics. And by the way, I like you a hundred times more than the GM we had at the time. <laughs> I still would have taken Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups was the right pick there. He's the right pick now. He's the right pick back then. So they take Chauncey Billups. The first night they play the Bulls, and this is the third MJ title team in a row. It's the three-peat team. And we beat them. We come back. We press them. I'm at the game. It's like the most exciting Celtics moment in five years. Yes. We, we come back. We beat the Bulls. Billups is guarding Jordan. Billups is doing athletic shit and I don't know if this game's on YouTube, but it has a couple moments in that game where you left that game and you go, oh, wow, we really have something here. This is wonderful. Because I he played for Colorado. We didn't get to see him in college. Right. And then, uh, and then there was a game 
when Steve Nash, I think he was on Phoenix. Steve Nash comes in and absolutely dusts the floor with Chauncey Billups. And Chauncey's playing time starts getting yanked around. Starts ending up in trade rumors. And then they end up dealing him for Kenny Anderson. And who had a pretty big contract at that point. It was like 49, 50 million. And Patino's doing his whole, we didn't give up on Chauncey. We thought he was fantastic. We just wanted to get a real point guard. And Kenny comes in and has a bunch of personal problems. And the trade's a disaster. And somehow it was one of the three worst moves Petito made. But uh, I, if you just, I, how about this? You have a young team. Why not keep the rookie point guard? That's it. I want to ask you, was that game, the first game of the Rick Petino era, where they go and beat the, the, the Bulls, was that the highlight of the Rick Petino era? It might have been. Was that the, 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 most, the best win of his entire tenure? Well, I remember that first year was better than I think people remember because they had a really young team. There's a lot of turnover. I remember being concerned. They, they spent a lot of money on Chris Mills and free agency that when he took over. And then right before the season, they traded him. And he hadn't even played a game as a Celtics yet. They traded him for like Walter McCarty and John Wallace and all these guys. And it was like, Chris, it became obvious that Chris wasn't a fit with the style we want to play. And it's like, you literally just signed the guy. You didn't realize he wasn't a fit when you signed him. So that was a red uh, flag. But that first Celtics team, um, I think they ended up, they were over 30 wins. They were oh, like yeah, 36, yeah. 46. And, and the press thing actually worked. It like did. It, they would do it and they would flip games around and teams were scared of it. And there was something there. They just couldn't figure out how to channel it. Well, because it really isn't a professional defense. You can't really play a full court press for any no. extended period. Um, but but it, as, a, know, as a five minute gimmick, it worked. And for rewriting the story for the Celtics, they improved by 15 or 16 games from the previous season. It was there was reason for, for optimism. Yeah. Um, he could still go fuck himself, though. So <laughs> the fourth pick now, um, Vancouver is on the clock. Rough ride for Vancouver. The documentary about the Vancouver Grizzlies would just be sad and have no upbeat parts at all. Oh, it needs to happen, though. And I mean, really, big country, Stevie franchise. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Oh, I can't wait. The 99 draft when uh, the, going over the Stevie franchise, how he reacted to getting drafted. So I have Vancouver. I have them taking Keith Van Horn here at the fourth pick. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think the three guys left on the board who were definitely starters were Keith Van Horn, Steven Jackson, Tim Thomas. And listen, there's a reason Steven Jackson bounced around the league. Okay. And there's okay. a reason when our test was in the stands fighting people, Steven Jackson is like, I'm going to go up there and, and not only am I going to help you, I'm going to escalate this. <laughs> like, there's a reason the Spurs after the 03 title said, yeah, we're good. Good luck. I have a lot of respect for Captain Jack. He really was the second best player on a title team. I would I, rather have the stability of Van Horn for like that seven years of Van Horn's career. I think he was a 20-point scorer. The, the, the reason that I think it makes sense is because he was an unknown quantity, not only to the teams, but also to himself. He had some growing up to do. He was a catalyst in Golden State and a catalyst in San Antonio because he found himself 
out and found this, you know, how to operate in, in situations um, and could, you know, take the the collateral stuff that he, he brought to the table and minimize it. And it took him a little while to figure that out, I believe. The other thing is Van Horn was a better asset. Just if you're trying to trade somebody or do whatever, Steven Jackson really at no point in his career was an asset. Van Horn was in, you know, he was the centerpiece of the Matumbo trade. And Matumbo at that point, it was a year removed from being the defensive player of the year. Van Horn was in a couple of weird trades, actually. Uh, he was in that first one I mentioned, which was almost like a McDonald's All-America who's who. Although Jimmy Jackson, Montross, all those guys were pretty big guys. But then he was in... It was him and Todd McCullough for Dikembe Mutombo, 2002. Mutombo ends up going to the finals. Then he was in a four-team trade. He was traded by the Sixers to the Knicks. The Atlanta Hawks received Glenn Big Dog Robinson and a second-round pick. Minnesota traded Terrell Brandon to the Atlanta Hawks. Minnesota traded Mark Jackson to the Sixers. The Knicks traded Latrell Sprewell to Minnesota and Philly traded Randy Holcomb in a 2007 first round pick to the Atlanta Hawks. Um, it turned out it was lottery protected. They received cash instead. So Atlanta didn't really get that much, but I guess Sprewell was the centerpiece of that. What a weird trade though. It's a, it's a weird trade. They don't do four team trades anymore because now they would leak out immediately as they were discussing it and it could never happen. Right. Un underrated. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels impossible. The underrated big winner, Big Dog, getting down to Atlanta while um, oh the, yeah, the 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 Gold Club was still in in full effect. Gold Club might have been gone at that point, yeah, or Wait. maybe he ended it. So then, in two thousand four, another three teamer, Van Horn gets traded to the Bucks. The Hawks trade Nazi Muhammad to the Knicks. This is when Isaiah's is like, I'll take any bad salary. Milwaukee trades Joel Prisbill at Atlanta. And Milwaukee trades Tim Thomas to the Knicks because, again, Isaiah's like, I'll take any bad salary you have. And the Knicks trade Michael Doliak and a second-round pick to the Hawks. So that happened. And then in 2005, trade deadline, February, it's Keith Van Horn to Dallas for Calvin Booth and Allen Henderson, two expiring contracts, and ends up he's on those two Dirk teams, including the Dirk team that ends up going to the finals. But then if you remember... He doesn't retire. He's like just this fake cap figure that you can kind of throw oh. into trades. Remember that whole thing? So he's traded one more time in the Jason Kidd trade. <laughs> they trade him with Desana Diop, Devin Harris, 2008 first round pick, Ryan, which became Ryan Anderson, a 2010 first round pick for uh, Kidd and Antoine Wright and Malik Allen. But this, so Keith Van Horn, six trades. This this is really the 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 heyday of the trade machine. I mean, this is when you know the 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 creativity and the multi teams and so forth. I have a question for you related to Keith Van Horn, though. Do you do you have in front of you how much money he made? Do you know how much money he made? Don't look it up. I want to ask you if you don't have it in front of you because I know what what the number is. I looked it up. Oh, I I would say he made probably like a hundred and fifty million dollars. Oh no no no, much much less than that. He he ended up with only around ninety million. Eighty nine million is what I. Oh, have. I guess because he only had one big contract. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh yeah, still ninety the contracts million feels that like big a lot. Yeah, so his new contract, 01, 9 million, jumps to 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That was back in the day when you would sign these seven-year deals. That's why 
I never saw Jalen Rose um, ever use a car in the entire time I've known him. You know why? Because he signed like a $100 million deal with Indiana. He just has car service. He's car service rich. Ahead of uh, his time. All right. So I have Van Horn for who do you have? Denver is on the clock with the fifth pick. Who do you have? So I, I take Steven Jackson because I have the benefit of, you know, knowing what his career consists of and the contributions he could make to, to teams. I have no idea how he would fit in with the, the personnel on that Denver team uh, at, at, at that juncture. My suspicion is is poorly. My guess yeah. would be that it wouldn't be a great fit. But, you know, based on on career achievement, uh, I, it would be worth the spin on Captain Jack there. Denver took Tony Battee and Rafe LaFrance in back-to-back drafts. They took Posey in 99, Mamadou Nadai in 2000, Tishka Vili in 02, and then finally Carmelo in 2003. But yeah, that was a rough stretch for Denver picks. I think Captain Jack would have fit right in. Now, <laughs> there's... there's uh, Where did he end up going in the draft? He Let's went see. 42nd overall. 42nd. To Phoenix. He went to Butler Community, Butler County Community College. Yes. So that must have been like deep, deep, deep major JUCO. All right. So you have him at fifth. I agree with that. I, that's where I had him as well. And then for number six, Boston, this is the last decent starter on the board, Tim Thomas. So Tim Thomas is one of those people that I just have a violent reaction to because when, uh, you know, when I had Clippers season tickets during the really dark times, they had that 2006 playoff run. He pays Dunleavy, even though the players hate Dunleavy, the things start to turn. But the other thing he did was he gave Tim Thomas like 6 million, 6 million a year for five years or something. Right. Tim Thomas. Look, this is basketball. It's sports. I don't want to get too personal. It was despicable what he was doing. <laughs> I, I've just, I was outraged in the stands. I, I remember writing about this time. I went to a game where it seemed like he was determined not to cross either three-point line. <laughs> and he was just like, he had made a bet with a buddy. Could I play this whole game without ever crossing the three-point line? But what was frustrating about him, and he played for a long time. He played until uh, 2010 and he bounced around. He was on a lot of different teams. What was frustrating about him was you know, a lot, he was like a poor man's version of like a, how we felt about Rashid Wallace or somebody like that, where there was real talent here. This was a 6'10 guy who could pass a dribble at a high level, who could shoot threes, who could post people up and you'd watch him and you would just feel like, oh, there's more there. Somebody's going to unlock this. And nobody ever did. Nobody ever did. If there, there is a team. There's a most frustrating all-star. There's a, you know, your top five all-time most frustrating. I, I don't know if he ta- cracks the top five, but, you know, he's around the hoop. Well, so that 2001 Milwaukee team that David Stern prevented from going to the uh, finals <laughs> when he rigged the Eastern Conference finals for Philly, he's the sixth man on that Milwaukee team and had some really good moments. And in 03, the next year, they lose in round one. But he was 18 points a game in the playoffs that year. Um, from a three-point standpoint, his last two Buck seasons, 43% from three, 57% from three. When he was on Phoenix in 2006, which was the other great run he had, where Amari's out for the year. 
everyone's like, oh, right off the suns. Nash is like, no, you're not writing us off, actually. It's Nash, Sean Marion, Boris Diaw, Raja Bell, Leandro Barbosa, and Tim Thomas. Six of them. And Tim Thomas was really good on that Suns team. Unfortunately, he was too good because the Clippers were like, yeah, Tim Thomas gave him 30 million. <laughs> and then that was it for Tim Thomas. But remember, he was good on those Suns teams. Oh, no, that that 2006 playoff run, you know, he he played a, a an important role and made an important contribution to that team. And he was like a, a legit five-tool guy. Like a right. five, he, he, if he gave a shit, could could really flourish in the current iteration, uh, the current version of the league. Well, now we're dropping, we're dropping a level. Unfortunately, Precipitous. that was it. We're done for starters. We have uh, we have fallen off a cliff. So I have Tim Thomas going to Boston. Six now. New Jersey is on the clock at number seven, and we're assuming that that stupid trade that Philly uh, ended up doing with them doesn't happen. So who do you have with? New Jersey at number seven. Um, I, I, mean, I can't wait to see who you pick because I had somebody that surprised me. It's ugly. Uh, well, I, should we I give? Have, hold on, before you do it, should we give the listeners some possibilities? Sure, sure. That that that's reasonable. Um, Antonio Daniels, Derek Anderson, Austin Crozier, Tony Batie, Danny Fortson. I'll give everybody those five names. Um. You didn't. Did you go the off the board? <laughs> you I went have. off the board. All right. I did. I did. Let's hear it. I'm putting in Bobby Jackson. Oh, okay. Bobby Jackson, actually, uh, one of the best six men in the league for a sustained stretch. Yeah. Like a a a, a, a genuine chemistry guy, a real yeah. guy that you could count on to take a second unit and get them collectively. To play, uh, you know, at a higher level than they might have. He won the NBA Sixth Man of the Year award in two thousand and three, and you know, he he made a first team All Rookie. Oh no, I'm sorry, uh, that was Mercer. <laughs> Bobby hmm. Bobby was not a first team All Rookie. Um, That's all right. But Bobby, you know, uh, I have nothing but positive thoughts when I think about Bobby Jackson's impact on the league and the contribution he made to the teams he was on. That's funny. I thought about putting him higher than I did. And then I, I, I was trying to, you know, do the whole thing where it's like, I, I'm probably overvaluing this person. I want to be fair and accurate. I think that's a great pick house. Oh, thank his, you. His Sacramento years. So he's at Sacramento 0105 and they're really relevant for at least the first four of those years. He's playing 23 minutes a game, 37% from three, 11 points a game. Not te- not terrible as your third guard. And then when you get to the playoffs, um, especially in 03, when uh, they played 12 playoff games, he was 14 a game that year for them. And uh, 35% from three. Just one of those guys. Yeah. A, gu- a guy that, uh, you know, ends up, if he's your third guard in a playoff series, it's not the worst thing that ever happened. He also, that team, as we've discussed many times, including the unreleased, Chris Weber book of basketball podcast that we haven't released yet. That team needed some testicular fortitude. And he was one of the few people that actually, uh, actually had it. So co-sign co-sign, um, for my eighth pick, I'm going to, which would be golden state. I'm going to break Indiana's heart. I'm going to take Austin Crozier. Oh, 
And here's the case for it. Now, he he was mostly, you know, mostly a journeyman guy, like a ninth, tenth guy. I think if you're talking about what does somebody look, um, if we were playing basketball a little more smartly, he could he could have been a really nice stretch four for the right team. But the thing that really stood out as I looked at him compared to all the other guys, he was kind of valuable in, in 2000 and 2001 for the Pacers. Like we watched him play in playoff games, um, especially that Pacers team, which came damn close to beating the uh, 2000 Lakers. And he was like the sixth or seventh best guy in that team. He could play. They could run plays for him. He averaged almost 10 points a game. He's 40% from three. Probably should have taken more threes, but uh, I don't know. I just enjoyed his game. So if if the best I can do is an eighth or ninth man at this point, I'd rather have him than Derek Anderson or Tony Batiste, people like that. Okay. I mean, that that that's... Legit. I don't have any argument. I, with it. The only the only argument is I've watched him in, in a playoff series actually mean something as a top seven guy, whereas the other guys I could not say that. So, uh, you you're ninth with Toronto. I am going to take now that we're in that Derek Anderson, Tony Batie, yep, Danny Fortson territory. I'm going to do something slightly again off the books and and go with Brevin Knight at this slot. Oh. Mainly because, now, you know, a very underrated career. He was in the top 10 for assists four times uh, early in his, his career. But the main thing about... Um, him is is a maturity. The, the Stanford guy, the, the basketball IQ, a much longer career than you would have expected considering kind of his size 12 years in the league. And that's, you know, because you want to put the keys in the hand of a guy who knows how to drive the car. His, his, his biggest, you know, the only knock against him is he played on terrible teams. He, he played on awful basketball teams. So you never really got to see him in under in, in competitive circumstances, but that's, that's who I would have rolled with a little Brevin Knight action. I just never felt like he could shoot. Okay. And he was one of those guys that you really wanted it to happen for him. You know, he he just seemed like a good guy, seemed like a great teammate, uh, pesky on defense, all that stuff. Out of everyone in this class, he led the led the class of 97 in assists, 6.1 a game. But 42, 41% shooter. Yeah. 13.4% from the three-point line. Well, Team, it, teams would lay off like five yeah, feet from yeah, him. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So that's the only reason I didn't take him. So I think for the 10th pick, you know, Derek Anderson, who got signed to a big contract and then nobody, I remember, who was it? Portland made the big run in him. They stole him from San Antonio. And he never turned into, I think, what everybody thought he was going to be. And San Antonio in 2001, which was a tough year because Duncan got hurt that year. And um, I think he could have gone toe-to-toe with the Lakers and at least maybe taken a playoff game from them. They almost went undefeated in the playoffs. Derek Anderson was huge for them that year. He was 15 and a half points a game, 40% from three. And it all led to him getting this giant contract from Portland to 
basically give them stability at the shooting guard and he just didn't live up to it. And I'm looking at what his, what his numbers were. Yeah. So it jumped to, he's making 2.2 in 2001. It jumped 6.5 in 2002. Even in 2007, he's making 9.7 million. So it was one of those like long contracts. He just wasn't worth it. So I'm holding that against him a little bit. That was why I didn't take him at eighth. But you know, he he was he was pretty good. There was he's also one of those guys who was like bouncing around for a reason. Yeah, Cleveland, two years in Cleveland, goes to the Clippers for a year, goes to San Antonio for a year, ends up in Portland, then plays for Houston, Miami, and Charlotte. He's on near at eight teams. Something's probably wrong. Yeah. So anyway, he's my tenth pick. Congrats, congratulations to uh, <laughs> Milwaukee for that one. <laughs> Who do you have at number 11, Sacramento? We got five picks left. I'm going to do Antonio Daniels here. Okay. Um, I think, you know, looking back, good, good, solid point guard contributor, uh, 13 seasons in the league, 44% um, shooter, and, you know, a capable, at this stage, now that, now that we're, you know, past 10, you want guys that are going to make be reliable contributors. Ten, you know, eleven to twenty is 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 a combination of, and you know, you and Daryl have talked about this before. It's like starting to be really fifteen is really when the crapshoot starts. You know, yeah. But well, in this case, it was it was after the top six. We didn't realize that at the time, right? But you know, I I I think uh, steady, solid, trustworthy contributor is valuable. You know, I, I'm already regretting our redraft. I kind of wish I had taken him at eight. Because here's the thing. By the same token that I said with Crozier, like we saw him succeed, I should have taken him eight. Because um, he had two, in 2003 on the Spurs, they won the, oh, I'm sorry, 2002. They didn't win the title that year, but they played two rounds. And he was like a third guard for them. But the, the year that he was actually pretty good was that 05 Seattle team that we loved. Oh, yeah. That was a Ray Allen, like, way ahead of his time season. Early Richard Lewis. Um, there was some Danny Forts and Jerome James. Uh, rebounding combo. Daniels. That team was a little ahead of its time. Daniels was the boss, too. Like, he was legit, you know, like, the, 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 the floor leader. They won 52 games that year. There, oh, Luke Rittenauer was on that team too. And Reggie Evans, that was the other one. And then the Radman, Vlad Manovich. That was the funniest thing about that team, other than that it was the last great Sonics team, was that they got a bunch of guys paid. Radmanovich, Jerome James, oh, had the God. hilarious $30 million contract, stuff like that. So I think you got good value there with Antonio Daniels oh, at 11. You. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to take, uh, speaking of good value, the Batman, Tony Batie. Yeah. At number 12, I have him going to Indiana. Now we had him with the Celtics. They traded for him a, like within two years after this draft. And I got to say in, uh, in the 2002 year, when we made the playoff run, when they astonishingly came within a couple of breaks of maybe making the finals with Paul Pierce, Anton Walker and a bunch of role guys, the Batman was 27.7 minutes a game during that playoff run. He's basically six and eight. He could, he blocked two shots a game. Yeah. He could run the floor. Yeah. He was always frustrating. It always felt like there was more there. Yeah. Um, but 
You know what the greatest thing he ever did for the Celtics was? No. The night Paul Pierce got stabbed, he was with the Batman, Tony Batie. Tony Batie basically carried him two blocks to the hospital and saved his mm. life. Wow. Which ended up uh, not only saving Paul Pierce's life, which was the best thing about that, but also, you know, kept his basketball career alive and led to all the other good things he had with the Celtics. But the Batman saved Tony, saved Paul Pierce's life. Wow. So there that's you go. A, Not incredible. bad value for number 12. He's a lifesaver. <laughs> I would say it's genuinely a, a, an actual real life lifesaver. Who do you have? We have three picks left. Number 13, Cleveland. Not a lifesaver. Not somebody that anybody would ever suspect was going to be in a position. Now, I don't, you know, like, I don't know personally, but the way his career played out and reputationally, Danny Fortson, um, Cincinnati grad in Cleveland. Right. So, so a little bit of that Ohio flavor, a little bit of that hometown kind of vibe. Tough guy. I think in some respects, like kind of underrated. He averaged in one season over 16 rebounds, like a real banger when he was inclined to go ahead and bang a little bit, which was not always the case. So he plays for 10 seasons. Only makes the playoffs once. We had him in Boston in the 1999-2000 season, which was a profoundly, profoundly unhappy season. Patino's last full season. And Patino was only playing him 16 minutes a game. He he averaged 6.7 rebounds in 15.6 minutes. Every time they put him out there, he got every rebound. And I would go to the games, whether I was with my dad or with somebody else, and they would put Danny Forsen in and the team would play well and he would get every rebound and then Patino would take him out. And Danny always looked like he might punch Patino in the face, <laughs> which maybe he did and it never came out, but they got him in an unbelievable trade. They This was actually a good Patino trade. They traded Popeye Jones, Ron Mercer, and Dwayne Shinsis to Denver in August 99 for Fortson, Eric Washington, Eric Williams, and a 2001 first-round pick. Now, here's the catch with that 2001 first-round pick. They had the chance to roll it over. It was, it was like this protected pick that they could either grab or roll over, and then the protections kept lessening. Okay. They grabbed it in 2001 during the draft when they have the 10th, in the 21st pick. And they decide we're also going to take this Denver pick too. And now we'll have three first round picks. They could have rolled it over. And in 03, it would have been the Carmelo pick. And this oh. was a big thing back in the time in Boston. Like, why are they taking this pick now? Yeah. This is the 11th pick. Like roll that thing over. Denver sucks. Denver's terrible every year. This could be a top five pick. Chris Wallace, your friend. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it gets worse. Who do we take? Kedrick Brown. Oh, I thought it was going to be Joe Forte. No, that was later. <laughs> my old, one of my all-time favorite Chris Wallace moments. So instead of uh, two years later, Carmelo. So anyway, Fortson, he did average 12 rebounds a game one year. Yeah. Um, he averaged for the 16 Warriors. rebounds in 2001. And then uh, he, he kind of has a nice little renaissance near the end there with Seattle when it's him and Reggie Evans just wreaking havoc. It was, that I really loved that team. I would watch it 
I would be probably be the only one other than you and everyone from Seattle who would watch a documentary in the 05 Sonics. But, uh, but yeah, he, he was in there too. He didn't play that much in the playoffs, but that was kind of the last run for him. Okay. We have two picks left. We have the Clippers on the clock at number 14. And I think this means if I'm doing this correctly. Yeah. I got to do it. Ron Mercer. Okay. Sure. So again, I was there for those first couple Ron Mercer years. Yeah. And his second season, the 99, the lockout season, he averaged 17 points a game. He couldn't shoot threes, but, and he didn't really get to the free throw line either. He's a guy now that advanced metrics would pick apart. Didn't really rebound. Didn't really get assists. Um, but the thing he could do back then, which we valued for whatever reason, were these 17, 18 footers. And I probably have a column in my old website archives of comparing him to Reggie Lewis because I was there for the first couple of Reggie Lewis years. Yeah. Ron Mercer, very similar type of game, did not shoot threes, athletic, could get like a 17 footer when he wanted to. And they end up trading him to Denver. And then he just starts bouncing around. He goes Denver, Orlando, Chicago. Indiana, San Antonio, and the Nets. And it just never happens. And I think the biggest reason it never happened probably was that he uh, he couldn't shoot threes. But he only plays 11 playoff games in his entire career. So that's it. Uh, you have the last pick, 15. Uh, I, don't, I don't love this. We're looking at guys like Anthony Parker and Anthony Johnson, the two Anthonys. Alvin Williams, Mo Taylor. Scott Pollard who I don't think is actually crazy at this position. Damon Jones, Kelvin Cato's Burmese snake. It really <laughs> drops off. We're in a lot of trouble here after 14 picks. I mean, I, I'm just looking back at, at Mark Blunt. Know, Mark Blunt had a run there for a year. This was, this is probably the right spot for Brevin Knight, except for I, I, I chose Brevin Knight's maturity earlier with, with Toronto. You can do a little uh, Damon Jones. Maybe some Damon Jones. He, 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 he I I actually know. I'm I'm gonna go with one of the Anthony's. I'm gonna go with uh Anthony Parker, who uh just oh, on God. Uh, well, I, I I don't know. I mean it's it's Anthony Parker or Anthony Johnson. How about this? Let's just end the draft after 14 <laughs> picks. <laughs> but it's a lottery. We just made it through the lottery. 15's irrelevant yeah. anyway. Yeah, 15's irrelevant. None of those guys cared. Or none of those guys mattered. Yeah, so we had Scott Pollard. We had Mark Jackson. Remember, he had a nice little fantasy run there one season and then yep. was never heard from again. The uh, Roderick Rhodes, who is like one of those high school American guys. he ends Tremendous up, upside potential. He was, uh, yeah, he was a first round pick. Never happened for him. Yep. We had, oh no, he was second round pick. He was 33rd pick. And then I'm trying to, everybody else... This was a bad draft. Serge Wicker. <laughs> Serge Wicker went 48th. Yeah, Anthony Johnson had a couple of runs. Um, the 97 draft house, not great. Not great. F you, Rick Patino. Fuck you, Rick Patino. <laughs> Fuck you right in the eyeballs. You lied. You said Chauncey and Ron Mercer were your backcourt for the next 10 years. And after 51 games, they weren't. And you were never honest to anybody rooted for the Celtics. And you shouldn't have taken the job after we did win the lottery. <laughs> By the way, 
When we talked about Antonio Daniels, you never mentioned his two-year Wizards run there. I loved it. I, I absolutely adored his time. He was he was our genuine leader. He played a, an important mentorship role with John Wall um, and I think was helpful, you know, with with to the extent John Wall, uh, can, can, you can contain John Wall. I think he made a, a good impression on on uh, professionalism and the like. You're returning for the 99 redraft. Yes. We will I'm see excited that for house. that one. House, stay safe. Don't touch anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm going to. Are you getting takeout? I'm, it's, it's a mix. We're cooking a lot of bacon in my house. We're in a, in a heavy bacon rotation right now. We did take out the last couple nights. Takeout's fine. I will yeah. support our local restaurants. I that's mean, th- that's what my feeling was. There, we have restaurants near me that I don't want to go out of business. So, and you can you can disinfect the packaging, and and so far there's no indication that the food's tainted. Nobody's talked about delivered food giving them a, a problem. So, support your local restaurants. Hundred percent agree, Joe House. It was a pleasure as always. Talk to you soon. Yeah, buddy. All right. Thanks for listening to the '97 redraft. Stay tuned for the 1998 redraft because that's coming. Me, Chris Ryan, Ryan Rosillo. Me, Ryan, and Ryan. 98. That's next on the Book of Basketball feed. See you then.